John chapter 15. You open up your Bibles there. We looked at verses 26 and 27 on Sunday. We're going to study through the chapter tonight, and then we're going to come back to the chapter again on Sunday to consider this, this word that the Lord, I truly believe, has for us as a fellowship. I know he has it for me personally, and that is the word of abiding. We're in John 15. We just finished up last week John chapter 14, which is, you know, convenient, But at the end of John 14, verse 30, Jesus says, I will not speak much more with you. Why? Because time's running out. He has a little more time. In fact, he has the distance from the upper room to Gethsemane to do final teaching, at least before they see him in his resurrected state. Why is that so important? Because right now it's faith building. When they see him, that's not faith, that's seeing. And Jesus says, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. He's building in as much faith as possible in their hearts and in their lives before they see him resurrected. So that when they see him resurrected, all of that pre-built faith will come to bear. So he says, I I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming. We talked about that last week, coming in the person of Judas. Satan possessed him and is now coming. The ruler of the world is coming but he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. I love that John includes that Jesus said that. It doesn't seem theological, doesn't really seem pertinent at all, but it's what he said as they're around that table, that triclinium, and they're sharing in that final Passover. Get up, time to go, boys. And they get up, And they leave the upper room. And the reason why that statement is significant is now the teaching continues as they make their way east. And we need to know that because that's gonna impact even our understanding of the teaching. The rest of this, John 15 and 16, is not taught in the upper room. It's not taught around the table. It's not taught in that solitude. It's taught in the outer, outside, outer air walking to Gethsemane across the Cadron Valley comes to that garden at the base of the Mount of Olives. But as they walk, on that Paschal night, they would have had a breathtaking view of the temple. See, if you're, if you're in Jerusalem, and those of you who have been there, if you can imagine being to the west of what they call the Kotel or the Western Wall, up in the old city, to the west of that, that's likely the location of the upper room. We go to an upper room when we visit Israel. Is it close, possibly, maybe above where the original upper room? So that would, I guess, make it an upper, upper room. But above that, perhaps, but it was in that area, that section of the old city, and then they began to make their way across to the Kadron Valley. Now, we don't know, did they go down around the south, around the Temple Mount, and across the Kadron Valley, or did they go onto the Temple Mount, and then cross the courtyard? And then out the eastern gate, that's possible as well. Whichever direction they went, ultimately, as they came around the Temple Mount, they could look back and have an amazing view of the temple that night. And I say the Paschal moon because that time of year and that season, the moon would have been shining bright and they could look back and they would have a breathtaking view. The Roman historian Tacitus said, under the crown work, talking about the, the pillars and the, the lintel of that huge door. There's a huge bronze double door for the eastern side of the Temple Mount complex. 
and of the temple itself and looking back, wrapped around those pillars and across the lintel, uh, Tacitus says, was spread out a golden vine. Its branches hanging down from a great height, the largeness and fine workmanship of which was a surprising sight to the spectators. It's a solid hammered gold vine. Solid gold, we believe that it was Herod's personal contribution to this architectural achievement. This beautiful golden vine. Josephus said its clusters of grapes were as tall as a man's height. And it could be seen sparkling in the moonlight up to a mile away. This beautiful golden vine. But not only was that golden vine beautiful, it was deeply nationalistic. I mean, that would be like hanging a huge American flag on the front of the temple if it was our country. It was a a huge symbol of Israel. It spoke to the Jewish heart. Even today, vineyards, uh, they dot the terraced hills in Israel. And vineyards were a prime source of of sustenance, the grapes and the wine drawn from those grapes. And of course, you know, Jesus was a master at teaching from his surroundings. So they, he says, get up, let us go from here. And they come out. And as they come out, you look back and there's that golden vine and it is the perfect backdrop for the seventh of the I am statements of Jesus. The final I am statement of Jesus, chapter 15, verse one, I am the true vine. I am the true vine, he says. Now again, to the Jew, the vine was not only a national symbol, not only was it beautiful, not only did it speak of the country, but it was also spiritual. The vine had huge spiritual connotations to Jewish believers. Turning your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter five. Isaiah is somewhere near the middle, Go there and you'll be close to Psalm. I'm gonna take you to the Psalms in just a second. But Isaiah chapter five, and we're gonna quickly jump from several, one chapter to another real quick, right up here in the front of the teaching and then we'll settle down a little bit. I'll let you rest. Isaiah chapter five, beginning in verse one. You Bible students know Isaiah wrote 750 years before the coming of Jesus. And so this prophecy is called, you may note in your Bibles, the parable of the vineyard. Isaiah chapter five, verse one. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And it sounds like the Lord is about to sing a love song, kind of like the Song of Solomon. It sounds like, boy, that would fit perfectly at the beginning of, of the Song of Songs. And it seems like it's gonna be a love song until it immediately turns into a lament. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat vat in it. Then he expected it to produce grapes, but it produced, well, your Bible may say something like worthless ones. The actual word there is stink berries. (laughs) And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce stink berries, worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste 
It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And this mournful elegy prophetically speaks of exactly what would happen, what did happen to Israel and Judah. Completely wiped out. The language is stunning. To read this now, and from our vantage point, 2,700 years later to look back and know what happened 2,000 years ago. And know, know for some 18 and a half hundred years the land was laid waste, literally. I mean, not only were the people driven out and this, this picturesque vine of Israel and Judah driven away, but the land itself was trashed and the rain didn't fall and the land was salted and the trees were cut down and, and environmentally it was absolute disaster and God said, this is exactly what I'm gonna do to my people, my vine, Israel, ultimately cast them out of the vineyard. Now go back to your left a little further to the book of Psalms, Psalm 80. Psalm 80. The vine, that picture of Israel. I am the true vine, Jesus says. And as he speaks the words and as they look at the vine, something's got to be stirring in them. What is he talking about? We know the vine passages of scripture. Isaiah 5, Psalm 80. Psalm 80, verse 1. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your power. Oh, come and save us. Oh God, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Oh Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and you have made them drink tears in a large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors. And our enemies laugh among themselves, O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Verse eight, you removed a vine from Egypt and you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea, that's the Mediterranean, and it shoots to the river, the Euphrates. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. By the way, just, just a side note in the midst of this, and I just realized this, verse 13, a boar from the forest eats it away. So they, uh, Asaph is writing this some thousand years before the fall of Jerusalem to Rome. And among the, the regiments, there were four different ones who took down Israel. The primary one, the symbol was the boar. A boar from the forest eats it away. And whatever moves in the field feeds on it. Oh, God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted. And on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself, 
It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Who is he talking about? (laughs) Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. And three times in this psalm, Psalm of the Vine, written out before Isaiah writes that hymn of the vine. Both of these vineyard songs, speaking of Israel, speaking of the beautiful vineyard and the vine that was planted there, but then completely wiped out. And in this, it's interesting, there's a refrain here. You may have noticed it three times and the song ends with it, verse 19. Oh Lord, God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Three times we hear this refrain. Three times as though crying out to Father, Son of your right hand, the Son of Man, and the Holy Spirit. Something else that's interesting is speaking of the face, the bright face that shines upon us and we will be saved. It's interesting to me that nearly all of the seven I am statements of Jesus answer the laments and the woes of this song. Let me explain that to you. Verse one of the psalm, and if you wanna go back and just listen, and we'll throw these in. Verse one says, oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel. What did Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. Verse two says, stir up your power and come save us. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. They say, cause your face to shine upon us. He says, I am the light of the world. You have fed them, verse five says, with the bread of tears. I am the bread of life. Look down from heaven and see. Look down from heaven, Jesus says, I am the door. Or verse 15 where he says, even the shoot which is your right hand is which your right hand is planted, and the sun whom you have strengthened for yourself, it is burned with fire, it is cut down, just as Jesus would be, right? Crucified. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, who you made strong for yourself. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the true vine. No truer words have been spoken. Then on that night, looking back at the golden vine and saying, I am the true vine, the legitimate vine, the actual vine. But watch this. Jump forward to the New Testament book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Where Jesus ties all of this together Psalm of the Vine, Psalm 80, and Isaiah's Song of the Vine, Isaiah 5. And now in Matthew 21, look at verse 33. Matthew 21, 33, where Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Now, as he spoke these words, those listening would have said, oh yeah, Psalm 80, the Psalm of the Vine. Or perhaps Isaiah 5, the prophecy of the vine. I know where he's going with this. (laughs) We're all ahead of him. And he says, he rented it out to vine growers. Wait, that's, that's not the song. Jesus just took a left turn on us. Rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Jesus continues. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, then killed another and stoned a third 
And he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. And you know, he's implying the prophets over all the years. But afterward, verse 37, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, Jesus says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. It, is, it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic because they're talking about themselves. They're judging themselves by the teaching. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. And Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it and they would have gotten it. Oh, he was talking about us. Stink berries ravaged fruit, broken hedges, bad managers, murdered servants, and only one, the bright face of the son who calls himself the true vine. I am the true vine. Messiah is even described as a branching vine vividly in Bible prophecy. Isaiah chapter 11, verse one, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And it goes on to say that the spirit of the Lord will be upon him and Jesus is being described in Isaiah 11. Or Zechariah chapter six, verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. That is the office of king and the office of, of priest. Jesus will reign perfectly over both. Jesus, the Messiah, the branch Isaiah chapter 11, verse one, again, that says a branch from his roots will bear fruit and the word branch, Bible students, what does that word, what is that word, do you know? Anyone know? Netzer, Netzer, Nazarene. He will be called a Nazarene, Matthew points out. All of this pointing to Jesus. He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And that is a contrast to all the phony vines. And there are lots of them. Trust me, lean on me, I'll take care of you, I'll sustain you. No, there is only one true vine and Jesus is the absolute fulfillment of the vine. He's the perfect fulfillment of the vine. Him being a Jew, by the way, himself. God took a vine out of Egypt, right? And planted it in the land. And that vine ultimately was cut off, Jesus again. But the perfect Jew following the exact same pattern of Israel coming out of Egypt into the land, cut off, but then resurrected and perfect. I am the vine, he says, and my father is the vine dresser. The vine dresser. In current terminology, that's the viticulturist. 
A viticulturist is a vine dresser, a vineyard owner, one who moves through the vineyard and knows how to tend to and care for the vines in the vineyard. The uh, Dictionary of the New Testament states this, the allegory of the vine tended by the gardener from which the sap flows into the branches denotes in the first instance the inner fellowship of disciples with Jesus, which rests upon their utter dependence and in which they must abide to bring forth fruit. It then denotes the intensive nurture of these same disciples by God. My father is the viticulturist. My father is the vine dresser. You know what that means? That as we stay attached to the vine, the father is moving through the vineyard tending the vine. How? By the Holy Spirit, which we've been talking about on Sundays. My father is the vine dresser. Watch what the father does. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, he says. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Not a zilch. Forget it, buddy. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. And this is fraught with theological difficulties. What the viticulturist does, the father, the vine dresser moving through the vineyard, it's so many strange things. I read this and if you just read it superficially, it's problematic at best, it's terrifying at worst. Because of what he does to those who are connected to the vine. Look again. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And everyone that does bear fruit, <laughs> he prunes it. All right, we gotta understand this. Some have read this passage and they ask the question, will fruitless Christians be thrown away and dried up and cast into the fire and burned. There are some within Christianity, some denominational trends that would say, yeah, you can lose your salvation. And if you're not fruitful, you're out. And you could end up cast out and burned. Rick, what do you think? I think hold your clippers there, grapefruit. <laughs> and don't start whining. <laughs> Let's not go nuts or grape nuts. Let's be clear. Just wanted to get your attention. Jesus is talking about believers. Okay, in these verses, taking away and pruning, he is talking to and about believers because note that he says this and you gotta let him give us the context and the understanding. He says in verse two, every branch in me. You are not in Jesus unless you've been born again. You are not in Jesus unless you are one of his disciples, unless you belong to him. This is the born again believer. So yes, this applies to Christians. What he says here, it, it applies to Christians. Those who are not bearing fruit and those who are. But how does the Bible describe fruit? Maybe we should start right there. 
What is the fruit that the Bible talks about? I, I, I served uh, in ministry for a senior pastor when I was a youth pastor one time. He got hired on. I had been there a long time. He was the new guy, and he was asserting a little bit of authority over the staff, which is okay. I understand that. But he came in, and he told me, Rick, I want to see some fruit in your ministry. I'm like, okay, I'll get you a basket. What do you, what do you want here? He wanted to me to start counting the number of teens showing up on a Sunday morning. I want to know butts and seats. That's the fruit. I'm like, dude, if that's your fruit. He wanted head count. And, and I was sitting there going, wait a minute, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Not that I was shirking my duty, and all he had to do was show up on a Sunday morning and see how many kids were there, and we would have been fine, but, but count the heads? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know it, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the front edge of the fruit that we bear. This fruit then causes there to be more fruit, different kinds of fruit, other fruit, and a bunch of fruits. You know, we got a bunch of fruits in the church. That's part of the deal. But we bear fruit and that develops fruit and the Holy Spirit does all of this. And by the way, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, singular. Because the Spirit produces the fruit. It is the fruit that belongs to you that comes from the Spirit. One fruit, nine flavors, if you will. Well, how's that possible? That's unnatural. You're right, it's supernatural. Supernatural produce of the Spirit, which is why Jesus says down in verse five, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we understand right out of the gate that the fruit is produced by the Spirit. The fruit is, as we talked about, the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus produces this. Jesus does this. And, and I guarantee you this. If you were to walk through some of the vineyards just here in the Skagit Valley, and I don't know how the good the grapes are here or how good the wine is here. Haven't tried it. But the, the vineyards in the Skagit Valley, if you were just to walk through one of those vineyards, I guarantee you there is one sound you would never hear. Come on, do this. Come on, pop. And there's a grape. Have you ever heard a vine groan? They don't do it. They don't grunt. They don't strain. They abide. They abide. Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Abide in me. You can do nothing apart from me. He is the produce. He is the energy. He is the, the nutrients that come. It comes from the vine into the branches. Colossians 1.27 makes it very clear that God willed to make known to you what is the riches of this mystery or the, or the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Abide, just abide. And he will do the work. I, I love the way Keith Green sang it. He is divine and you are the branch. <laughs> and that's how it works. But this is still problematic because what about the branches taken away or pruned or burned as Jesus describes in this passage? Not very comforting for the troubled heart. Remember, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. This whole thing should be encouraging, should be uplifting and faith building, but to talk about being either purged or pruned does not sound very comforting to me. Listen very closely. He is not talking about cutting people off. 
In fact, when he says, every branch in me, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, right? That's what it says in your Bibles. Maybe your translation is slightly different. You could just as easily translate that, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. He lifts up. The word is iro. And iro in the Greek means lifts up. It can mean taken away. But in this context, when we're talking about a branch in a vineyard, we're talking about lifting it up. We're talking about branches that are not bearing fruit. Go back to the Skagit Valley. Where are the vines in the vineyards of the Skagit Valley? Do you know where they are? Oh, yeah. They're on top of Yes, they're up. They're on trellises. They're not on the ground. Because if they were on the ground, they would not grow. They don't produce well. Vines that are down on the ground need to be lifted up. And every branch in me that's not bearing fruit, as the viticulturist comes around, he looks and he finds a branch. This branch is not bearing fruit. Let's lift it up. Let's, let's iro this thing. And so they lift up on trellises because that's the best way to cultivate a vine is get it up off the ground. Take the vine and put it on, if it's fruitless or if it's dry or if it's drooping, it needs to be lifted up. It needs more sun, it needs more oxygen flowing through it, and it needs more water reception, and that is always better when it's off the ground. Look at it this way. If, if I'm fruitless, it's probably because I am too close to the earth. If I'm fruitless, it's because I am too into the world. I need to be lifted up. I need to be, uh, well, I need more sun, S-O-N. <laughs> I need to breathe the oxygen of the spirit. I need to soak in the water of the word. I need to abide. And so every branch that does not bear fruit in me, he lifts it up. He trellises the branch so that it can begin to bear fruit. Remember, this is talking about branches in me. My branches, branches connected to me, Jesus says. And he goes on to say, and watch this, every branch that bears fruit, well, he prunes. I don't want to be pruned. Note this, the word prunes there is kathiro, which is where we get the word catharsis. But kathiro means literally to wash or to clean. Every branch in me that is bearing fruit, he washes it. And a washed branch there is cleaned off and now can bear even more fruit. And in fact, the same exact word that he uses in verse two, when he says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, he kathiros it so that it may bear more fruit. He uses the exact same word in the next verse. You are already kathiro because of the word which I have spoken to you. Clean. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. It's the same word. So every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it so that it will bear even more fruit. You could put it this way, and it's absolutely spiritually accurate. The cleaner we are, the more fruit we bear. The more righteous, the more holy. I'm not talking about self-righteous or puritanical holiness. I'm talking about the more you're pursuing the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The more we seek pure and holy things. The more we refuse to watch movies like Lightyear. You know, Lightyear, the new Buzz Lightyear Disney movie coming out. I don't know if you heard this, but one of the primary characters, Buzz Lightyear's co-space ranger, is a lesbian. This is a kid's movie. This is 
a dirty world and vines and branches that are down in the dirt are not gonna produce. And it just, it just makes me sick because I happen to be a Buzz Lightyear fan. Well, until this. Of course, it's not Tim Allen anymore, so it's completely lost the whole thing for me. <laughs> he cleans us and the cleaner we are, the more fruit we bear, but the dirtier we are, the less we're gonna bear fruit. That's just a spiritual truth. Ephesians chapter five, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Guess what the word cleansed is there? It's kathiro, katharizo, same word. But if we refuse to be washed, now here's the thing, and here's why I actually think that pruning is not necessarily a bad word, because if you refuse to be washed, he's gonna clip you. You will get pruned. That word kathiro can be used in that context, the removal of the dead twigs so that then the rest of the branch can, can begin to blossom and grow again. So, so the viticulturist goes around the vineyard and will remove, remove those things. There's a stick sticking out there that's dead and not producing. Take it off so it's not drawing anything away from the rest of the healthy branch. And so yes, God will trim the dead twigs off of our lives and sometimes those dead twigs aren't so dead. They just are headed that way and when he trims them, they hurt a little bit. God will use persecution. God will use trials. God will use difficulties in our lives to trim off the stuff that is unnecessary and keeps us from bearing the fruit that he wants us to bear. But even for that, we are not cut off, chopped up, or purged. We are lifted up, we're washed, we're trimmed of the dead stuff, and we are maintained, and that is the work of the vine dresser. And we're not even out of the first verse. I, we are actually, we did six verses. But I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Well, you might say, well, okay, but, but what about those who are cast into the fire and burned? Uh, verse six says that very clearly. Yeah, listen to verse six again. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and are cast into the fire and they are burned. These are the ones who do not abide in Jesus. These are the ones who are not connected to Jesus. They are not vine branches. They are fruitless weeds. And I, and I hate to sound rude or offensive, but they are worthless tares. As in Jesus' parable of the, of the wheat and the tares, there's wheat and there are tares. And the tares don't produce fruit. They're just weeds. They look like wheat, but they produce no fruit. And so they're tares and they are of no value. Useless twigs. And Jesus says, yeah, there's stuff out there in the vineyard that's gonna burn. There's stuff out there in the vineyard that is fruitless and worthless and is not connected to the vine. I am the true vine. And brothers and sisters, they may sit in church, but if they're not washed, if they're not born again, if they're not Jesus, they are not connected to the vine. This is, this is just the reality throughout the teaching of Jesus. And we've seen it over and over and over in John's gospel. This is not about showing up at church and checking a box. This is about being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why I use the word as we began, abide. If I don't abide with my wife, the relationship starts to get wonky. I need to abide with her. We need time together. That's just a natural thing. If I don't abide with my ministry staff, if we're not hanging out together and talking to one another and, and, and in each other's lives to some degree, if we're not on the same page, 
I mean, Les and Jake and I sat down for a couple hours this afternoon and just got caught up. See, Les goes on vacation and everything goes haywire and we have to bring him back in. No, I mean, but, but it, was, it was abiding in relationship. And as we abide in relationship, then we draw closer together and we function better together. And Jesus is just saying, that's what I want. That's what I want with you and, and from you. I don't want Sundays and Wednesdays. I want every day. I want you to abide in me as I am in you. And, and we were talking about this earlier this morning. I, I, I wonder sometimes, I really wonder sometimes if, if in my life, let me talk foolishly for just a second, forgive me, but if in my life, as much as I have to study the word because it's my job, every day I have to be in the word so that I can be ready on Sunday and ready on Wednesday. Every day I'm in the word to some degree and in that pattern in my life, there are still so many times where I realize, Lord, I am not abiding. I need to abide, help me abide. But if that's the pattern for my life, job requirement at all, by the way, it's not a job, but don't tell anyone. If I have to do that in my life, I wonder sometimes, what about someone who shows up on a rare Sunday? Is he abiding? Now, I'm not the judge. I don't make that determination. How well do we abide? And I am totally preaching to the choir because you're here right now. But I said this, and I'll say it to you, and if you're listening online, I'll say it to you as well. I still don't understand how we can say we abide with Jesus, we love Jesus, we want everything to do with Jesus, and yet our Wednesday night services are maybe a third of Sunday morning? Where are the other two-thirds? Soccer? I get it. I understand. <laughs> Music? Busy? Kids? And all that. And, I, and, and again, please hear me clearly. This is not about showing up here. I'm not saying that here is the measure of your fruitfulness. But if you're not even showing up, ask yourself honestly, how much am I abiding with Jesus? Is it a daily walk? As Paul said, if we live by the Spirit, we should always walk by the Spirit, also walk by the Spirit. Are, are, is your every step a step with, with him? I think that's the desire of most of our hearts, isn't it? To abide with him. Anyway, I'm, I'm totally off here. I don't even know where, I'm, where am I at. Oh yeah, so washed and, and cleansed. And yes, he's gonna do some pruning, but there are those who are showing up on occasion who think they're fine because they've done the religious thing and that is not what Jesus wants. He wants you. He wants your heart. And he wants you to have his. And yes, John 15, 6, when he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. That is a graphic picture of hell. So Jesus is not mincing words here. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through the Son. And the only way to be in the Son is to abide in the Son. But listen to this. When the world is done with you, it will cut you off. And it will cast you out. The same world that claims tolerance and coexistence, until, of course, you disagree with it, and then you get canceled, if we trust in the world, we will get burned, no question. So really, that's the choice. Abide in the Son unto eternal life and fruitfulness or trust in the world and you will get burned. And it's not because that's what God wants for you or has for you. That's because that's what the world does. 
and that will take place. Listen to yet another one of God's warnings to Israel. If, if Keep your finger there and flip back now to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 15, last one I want to show you in the Hebrew Scriptures. Ezekiel chapter 15, where yet another prophet is now speaking the words of the Lord about the vine. Ezekiel 15, and I'll pick it up in verse 1. You all there? (laughs) Furiously turning. Ezekiel 15, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the word of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? If it has been put into the fire for fuel and the fire has consumed both of its, consumed both of its ends and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it still be made into anything? He's talking about the wood of the vine, the vineyard. Have you ever seen a piece of furniture made of vineyard wood? Because it's stupid. You wouldn't do that. It makes no sense. What he's saying here is that typical wood that is used for for furniture or for fasteners like a peg on a wall or for fuel, good wood, you can't use wood from a vine for that same purpose. You can't build anything made of the branches of a vine. You can't even make a peg to hang your hat on. It would fall off because of a vine branch, and you you know this if you've ever seen it, the vine branch is very spindly. And when it dries up, it is paper thin. And it's not even good for fuel because it burns up so fast. So God is saying here through Ezekiel that the wood of a vine is completely useless except for one thing, and that is to produce grapes. That's the only value of the branch, but the branch has to be connected to the vine to have value in it. Otherwise, it's worthless. And he goes on in verse six and says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I have set my face against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully. And another way to say acted unfaithfully is to say they didn't abide in the vine. And so there's a picture there for us to understand. Abide in me and I in you. Or don't. But if you don't, you are like worthless, dried up twigs. And Israel is the picture of that. Sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? In fact, if I read that, just chapter 15 of Ezekiel, and I think about Israel, I think, wow, they're done. I mean, that's it. God is through with the Jew, right? Wrong, wrong. Have you been to Israel lately? It's amazing. It is beautiful. The vineyards, like I said, are all over the hills. Have you seen Jerusalem? It's thriving. And the people are back in the land and it's just as Ezekiel prophesied would happen. In fact, he, he finishes his epic prophecy, the entire prophecy of Israel, speaking of the splendor of Jerusalem. 
And the wonder of the millennial temple in the coming kingdom, it is stunning to read it, Ezekiel 40 through 48. If you just want to get your mind blown on what it's going to look like in the coming kingdom, check that out. It is remarkable, and we've never seen anything like it on the planet. And Ezekiel describes this marvelous thing that God is going to do. But listen to this, Ezekiel 39, verse 28. He says, then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then, and then gathered them again to their own land. You see, the viticulturist, the holy viticulturist, the vine dresser, our father, is a grape gatherer. And he will gather and is in the process even now of gathering his people back into the land. They don't understand. They're still primarily secular in Israel, but God's gathering and he's bringing back and he's keeping his word. He says, I will not hide my face from them any longer for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. And when that happens, you're gonna see fruit like we've never seen. God's the vine dresser and the gatherer of grapes. Verse seven, back in John 15. John 15, verse seven, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father's glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. It's not about burning fire. It's about bearing fruit. And Jesus calls us to abide to that deep, rich, intimate, personal relationship that is the way we live life, not what we do from time to time. It is our actual lifestyle. Verse 12, Jesus continues, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And note this, in verses nine through 13, eight times Jesus says agape. More than anywhere else, by the way, in the New Testament, in, in any one tiny little section here. Love, 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 he says. And not just any love, but agape, unconditional love. Do you think maybe he's trying to implant a message here? Love, love, love. This is an abiding love. And we're gonna come back to this whole section on Sunday. But as we read through it and consider this love that Jesus is calling us to and, and proving in and of himself and, and talking about, there seems to be something interesting here, and that is conditions placed on friendship. He's talking about agape, unconditional love, but he seems to put some conditions here. And if there are conditions here, is it really friendship? If there are conditions, can we really call it agape? Well, let's see. Four stipulations for friendship with Jesus. Four of them, you might wanna jot these down quickly. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Stipulation number one, we are welcomed as his friends by command, by command. You are my friends, he says, if you do what I command you. And note this, it's, it's the polar opposite. We actually flipped around of John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He says, you're my friends if you do as I command you. Listen, that's not 
the res- that, that's the result, it's not the requirement. Okay, you're my friends if you do what I command you is, is not the requirement of friendship with Jesus. It's the result of friendship with Jesus. You're my friends if you do what I command you. That's the proof that you're a friend of Jesus. You do what he commands. You don't do what he commands to become a friend. You are a friend and therefore do what he commands. You got me? So this, this commandment, calling to the commands of Jesus and friendships, uh, friends by command, we keep the commandments because we're friends, because he's called us into this relationship. Therefore, as part of that, we keep the commands. And you do that with your friends, don't you? If a friend calls up and says, hey, I need to borrow a truck because I gotta go to the dump, and you bring the truck over there, you have just obeyed a commandment. Well, you're not doing the commandment to make a friend, you're already a friend. So you're doing what your friend has asked. And that's what Jesus calls us to, the result of friendship with Jesus. And this is the quality of the kind of friends who love Jesus, they keep his greatest command, which is what? To love. I command you, this is my commandment, love one another as I have loved you. The entire law and the prophets hangs on this, love God and love your neighbors yourself. It is all hinging on love. That's the command. And the love of Christ controls us. 1 Corinthians 5.14 says. The NIV says the love of Christ compels us. I used to like that better because I like being compelled by love, not controlled. But you know what? The word is controlled. And the older I get, the more I actually like the word controlled because I don't have to think about it. (laughs) The love of Christ controls me. That means it is in control of my life and flows and functions through me in such a way that I'm not even thinking about it. I just love him and love people because his love is in me and it controls me and guides me to be a loving person. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us, right? If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Just let that settle. How's the quality of your love? The one who does not love his brother, we could say, or his sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And I love that John is just so black and white, so plain and so clear. There's no two ways around it. You either love God and therefore love people, or if you hate people, you hate God. That's it. John says, and this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So we are welcomed as friends by command, but secondly, we are welcomed as friends in confidence, verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. He has taken us into his confidence. And a friend is a confidant. And that's what's so wonderful, especially about this section that we're in, but really the whole gospel of John and the teachings of Jesus is how he brings us into his confidence and how he shares all things with us, the the very mysteries of God. He's not holding back. And I love this about Jesus. I'm so thankful that he just lays it out there for us. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, for to us God revealed through the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, and so we begin to hear and understand and know things that Jesus is teaching us, that the Spirit is showing us because he has brought us into his 
confidence. We are friends by command. We are friends in confidence. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Listen, it's not just the apostles he chose. We are friends by choice. That's number three. Friends by command, friends in confidence, and friends by choice. That is his choice. You would not be a friend of Jesus if he didn't choose you. And here we go with Calvinism. You would not be a friend of Jesus or a follower of Jesus if he didn't first choose you. Listen, that's his choice, but that doesn't mean he overrides my choice. And I know we've been over this again and again, but we've got to be clear, he makes that he has chosen you and you have chosen him. You have made a choice, but he made a choice. And he made a choice, Romans 8, 29, by his foreknowledge. He knew you would choose him, so he chose you. And he chose you. And I love this because, listen, it assures me that Jesus Christ has, in fact, chosen me. So if I just say, no, 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 it's all free will, and I chose him, then I would have to wonder at some point, but would he have chosen me if I hadn't chosen him? Jesus makes it clear. I chose you. I chose you. I have told Honoree Naomi, David, and Christopher this many times. We chose you. We chose you. Now, I've told Corey, Hannah, and Hayden, we didn't choose you. You, you, you guys, you just showed up. <laughs> Biological kids. No, I'm kidding. We chose them as well, not knowing what they would be like, but we chose by the grace of God to bring them into the world. Our adopted kids, we looked at them and we said, yes. We choose you. David was one when he came home. He had no choice in the matter. <laughs> we chose him. And this is what Jesus says to you and says to me, and this is one of the greatest comforts in the world. This is not that your free will has been stripped away or your choice has been taken from you. It's that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus looked at you and said, I choose you. I choose you. Now, I, I get that the non-believer would go, well, Okay, so he, he chose you guys, but so he hasn't chosen me? I'd be like, well, do you, do you believe that Jesus is your Lord? Well, I didn't say that. Well, then apparently he hasn't chosen you. Well, well, but, but okay, well, what if I chose him tonight? Well, then you would know he chose you. That's very simple. This is not rocket science. We make it hard, but it, it's not hard. He has chosen those whom he loves. He has chosen you, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to, the, to be the propitiation for our sins. Remember in 1 John chapter 2, John actually already said, and not only the propitiation for our sins, but for those of the whole world. So by Jesus' choice, everyone would be saved, which means everyone who chooses Jesus has been chosen by Jesus. But if someone rejects Jesus, then they're actually rejecting his choice. And he's not gonna force them into heaven. Why has he chosen us? To bear fruit. Galatians 5, and 23 again. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now you may say, well, Rick, how is that fruit? All of that is what makes the fruit of our lives sweet. 
All of that is, these attributes are attributes that, when, that then once in us produce even more, produce in ways that we can't even see, ways that we are completely unaware of. I can't wait to get there. When we're all there with Jesus in the clouds, I wonder, will we have some sense at that point of how much fruit has been born in our lives that we had no idea? Really? That guy's here because of this that I was involved in, and, and, but we'll all realize it wasn't us in the first place. We could do nothing apart from him. But marvelously, he chose us to flow through us like branches on a vine and produce all of this remarkable fruit. It is the sweet fruit of relationship that is with Christ and with the rest of his chosen ones. And it's a relationship that is nothing like human relationships, which are so brittle. Human relationships that are so easily divided by disagreements and departures. You know, we, we have dear friends. It's been so interesting in the last year, really, to watch how many people have moved away. People I love, people I miss, people I wish didn't have to move, but for one reason or another did. And that's the brittleness of human relationship is people will have to up and move. But see, Jesus never moves away. And you don't move away from him. You may think you did, but you didn't. Abide in me and I in you. Disagreements, departures, even death. Jesus describes eternally fruitful, satisfying love. And he welcomes us as his friends by his command, in confidence, by his choice. And finally, verse 17, this I command you that you love one another. And so we are friends of Jesus by commitment. By commitment. This is it. Listen, the one commitment that he asks us for is that we will commit to loving each other. This is what I want from you. I'm not asking you to memorize verses and check the box of church attendance. I'm asking you to love each other. By the way, church attendance does have to do with loving each other. <laughs> kind of hard for me to love you if I'm not here. Loving each other is the commitment. Now, now you might look around and think to love some of these people, I'd have to be committed. Just because we, listen, because we attend the same church fellowship doesn't mean that we will naturally like everyone here. So, so be at ease because if there's someone here who's rubbed you the wrong way, that's okay. That's gonna happen. You're not gonna automatically love someone because they love Jesus. But you need to commit to it. And you need to try to love. And you need to move beyond the natural to the supernatural love. And, and hear me on this, the commitment to love, even people who I wouldn't normally choose as friends, even people that maybe I wouldn't normally find as lovable, if I commit to love as Jesus loved, it not only makes me fruitful, it makes me sane. I start realizing that's what the church is for. That's what the church is for. It's to bring the love out of us is to drive the selfishness away. And Romans 13, eight, Paul says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And if you ever think with an individual in our fellowship or another Christian somewhere that you're just in conflict with and you can't see eye to eye and you ever think, I just don't have it in me. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, nine, by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So you find someone in the fellowship or someone in your life, another believer specifically, 
who you're having a real hard time loving, Jesus says to you, apart from me, you can do nothing. You're not gonna love this person apart from me. And so the best prescription, and I would toss this into a difficult marriage, and I would throw this into a difficult relationship, the best prescription is to say, Lord Jesus, empower me to love this person. Start praying that God will give you the ability to love where you're not feeling love, and watch it happen. See, he'll take you up on it because it's right in line with his will. He wants you to love. No one has seen God at any time, 1 John 4, 12. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So these are not optional among Jesus' friends. This friends by command and in confidence and by his choice and by commitment, the commitment to love. He's not saying, you know, if you'd like to do this, I'd appreciate it. He's saying, no, if you're my friends, this is what you'll do. If you're my friends, this is the deal. Now, we're gonna finish up here. And for all the joy and the love in this friendship, Jesus, at least for this chapter, ends with a very serious warning. We touched on it Sunday, but watch this. It's what I would call a cosmological warning, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you, and the word world there is cosmos. We get the word cosmos from it, but he's not talking about the universe. John's use of the word cosmos throughout this gospel speaks of created humanity, He's talking about creative humanity, specifically here, created humanity in active rebellion to God. If you were of the world, then the world would love its own, but I chose you out of the world, and because of this, the world hates you. Now, I want you to think about this. The unity we have as followers of Jesus is very unique. It's one of the things I love about church and Christianity and about running into another Christian in an airport. You know how all of a sudden you're immediately connected. You know nothing about that person, but you find out they know Jesus and suddenly, boom, you have something in common that is unique in this world. And you're drawn to that person and they're drawn to you. The unity of believers in the church is very unique. It's an assemblage of like-minded people who love Jesus first, and aspire to love each other. I'm reading this because I wrote it down. I wanted to make sure I said this clearly. We love Jesus first and aspire to love each other to forgive, to seek truth, purity, holiness, righteousness, to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to be known as his children, to provide housing for his spirit, to have confidence and an eternal inheritance. All of this, and we could write so much more. Think about how unique that is. How that makes you different than anybody else in the world. You step out of the world and you become part of this remarkable thing called the church. And I'm describing this because I could understand, I, I really could, I could understand a certain sociological jealousy from the world toward Christians because we have something the world does not have. And we are different, and we are unique, and there are promises, and there is comfort, and there is peace. There's so much we have as disciples of Jesus in the church the world does not have. So I get it. 
I, I would understand the world looking at you, looking at me and going, who do you think you are? I don't care for you. In fact, I, I hate you. And, and I would understand that if this was an us versus them scenario, but it's not. It's not. And in fact, and this hit me like a ton of bricks this week, the reasons that Jesus gives here for hatred are not sociological, they are theological. They're not sociological, you're different, you're unique, you're special, you have an inheritance, you're called after Jesus, you have all these things going for you and so people are jealous of that. That's not the issue, that's not why the world hates you. The world hates you because it hates him. And that's theological. And it's, it's really an important and very different mindset. It's not hatred because of who we are or hatred because of what we do. It's hatred because of who he is. And we're connected to him. We stand with him. Therefore, we are hated. And rejection of Jesus is the root of hatred toward Christians in the world. We need to understand that. Because otherwise, we will begin to function in an us versus them mentality. We're different than they are, and they hate us, so we're gonna hate them right back. Now, you might not even say that, but you might say, well, we're just gonna distance ourselves, and Christian groups have distanced themselves from non-believers, from the world, holding up placards and signs against the world rather than loving the lost as we're called to. So we need to move in out of the mentality that this is an us-them thing and into the mentality that, that we're hated by the world just because we're aligned with Jesus. How is Jesus toward the world? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Even if the world hates him for it, he loves the world and showed his love at Calvary. We're aligned with Jesus. We're part of him. Verse 20, remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. There's the positive, that if you're speaking the words of Jesus they, and they want Jesus, they're gonna want those words. They're gonna come, if they're gonna come to Jesus, they'll, they'll come to you and listen to you talk about Jesus because you're connected to him. Ever wonder, especially after you've walked with Jesus a little bit, ever wonder how anyone could hate Jesus? I mean, seriously. I just read through the Gospel of John, and I love this guy. I love what he does, and I love how he treats people, and I love the things he teaches, and I, I love what he's willing to do, and how he, how he died for me, and how he rose and, and forgave and, and calls me to a life that is remarkable. I love him. How can anyone hate Jesus? And I'll tell you how, because he calls the world out for its sin. It's the truth aspect of grace and truth. He offers grace to any and everyone who will accept it, but he deals in the truth. And the truth is, this is an evil, wicked, sinful world, of which many of us have been a part but have come out of once we come to Jesus. Jesus said back in John chapter seven, verse seven, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And outside of Christ, evil doesn't wanna be called out. How dare you? And so the world hates Jesus. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. So don't be a victim. what I say Sunday? Be the martyr. 
Be the one who testifies. Be the witness, not the victim, the witness. It's not like, woe is me, I'm a Christian. I'm so hated by the world. They hate Jesus. And if I'm hated because they hate Jesus, that's a badge of honor. And I'm called to love like he does. They will do these things to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. That is, they would have no awareness of it. There would, be no, there would be no judgment because they wouldn't know any better. But now they have no excuse for their sin. The word sin there is hamartia in the Greek. And it's behavior that misses the mark or veers off course or violates God's moral order that he established when he created the cosmos when he created the world, when he put humanity on it, he established a moral order and violation of that moral order, that's sin. And you all know that the immediate consequence of sin is guilt. That's the first thing that follows when you still have a conscience. There are many more painful consequences of sin that follow, but ultimately, Paul says, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 2, ultimately the conscience gets seared. Sin enough, and I was saying any particular sin behavior, if there's one sin that you really struggle with and you keep sinning and sinning and sinning and practicing that sin, your conscience will get seared. Suddenly that sin's not so bad anymore. When the conscience is seared, it's like nerve endings that have been singed and are numb, or we would say dead. That's interesting to me because James 1.15 says, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And the death that sin brings forth may not be physical death, it may be moral death. That you can't even comprehend the right or the wrong of a thing anymore because it's so burned into your brain, it's been so singed, it's so seared. Jesus doesn't want physical or moral death for anyone. And sin will result in both. People respond to Jesus when he says, you have no excuse for your sin. They respond in one of two ways. You can respond in humble repentance before a perfect God and enter into a sweet, fruitful, abiding friendship with Jesus or prideful rejection of the same God which develops a hateful attitude toward all things good and pure and right. And that is conscience and ultimately life killing. Isaiah chapter five, verse 20. By the way, back in the parable of the vineyard, after the parable is given, Isaiah says this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And it is exactly the lawlessness that we see in our country today. It's flipping things upside down. Abide with Jesus. And... You will receive hatred by association. I mean, that, that's the downside of all this abiding, and this abiding's really good. In fact, through the whole chapter, I go, wow, abide in me and I, I mean, you and I, and you're gonna bear fruit, and I'm gonna take care of you, and you're gonna be loved by me, and I'm gonna be with you, and you're gonna be in the family. This is all so good, abide, abide, and if you abide in me, you're gonna be hated. <laughs> kind of like to skip that one, but it's a reality, and Jesus is speaking in truth. The more you act and think and look like Jesus, the more the world is gonna hate you. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. Let me end with this. It all comes down to friendship. Friendship with Jesus 
that will bring hostility from the world, but it brings so much through and from and in Jesus. James 4, verse 4 says, do you know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. It's the vine in the dirt. It's the branch on the ground. And if you are in Christ and you are a branch on the ground, God wants to lift you up and wash you clean and aerate you and bring you the word of truth and bring you his spirit and make you fruitful again. That's his desire for you and for me. But the world sets itself against God under the authority of the ruler of this world who hates God. Verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the last word or the word that is written in their law, Psalm 69, verse four, they hated me without a cause. I'm not gonna do it right now, but if you want an extra passage to read before bed tonight, read Psalm 69. The whole thing is prophetic of Jesus. It's remarkable. And so when he says, they hated me without cause, that's Jesus speaking in Psalm 69. Verse 26 then ends with the promise. And remember, like we said Sunday, Jesus inserts this promise right into the midst of discussing all of this hatred. He says, when the helper comes, whom I'll send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning with me, with me. Now that was immediately pertinent to the disciples because he chose them, Mark chapter two, I believe it is, says he chose them that they would be with him. Am I right on that, Mark two? He chose them that, he, that they would be with him. And Jesus now says, you've been with me from the beginning and it is that withness that makes them a witness. The withness that makes me a witness. The withness, another way to say that is abide. They had been abiding with him for three years. They had been with him. And guess what? Just as we are with him, as we abide in him like branches to the vine, his friendship chooses us, nurtures and cultivates fruit in us, sustains our joy, and ultimately overwhelms the hatred of the world. Father, we thank you for the truth and the promises that are in this word tonight in this section, and we, and we pause at the chapter break, but we know Jesus' teaching goes on. Thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for the promises here. And now I ask, Holy Spirit, for this one favor through the rest of this week. I'm just asking from now till Sunday. Spirit of the living God, would you cause us to abide? I pray that for every one of us gathered that you would come to mind continually, just over the next few days, that we wouldn't go about our business and, and, and completely forget about you and stop thinking about you. Help us to return to you, to be praying and just speaking with you and abiding in you, Jesus. Let us practice from now through the weekend to be a people who truly abide in the Lord. You said I can do nothing we can't do anything without you. So I would assume that even means abiding. So would you help us abide, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.